<laughs> Let's turn over to Ephesians chapter 2, where we last left off, which I think it was about two weeks ago. And we're going to be reading there tonight. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. Uh, a study in Ephesians that I'm going through with you when I'm here. And it's all about spiritual transformation. And, uh, and this particular subject tonight, we're going to talk about transformed into a community. What God is doing when he brings us together after he transforms us individually. Let's see what's going to happen when we're a transformed community. So far in this letter to the Ephesian church, we've been treated to one long celebratory reminder. Paul began in chapter 1 by reminding the people in Ephesus of their rich spiritual inheritance. And it was brought about by their calling by God and inclusion into the body of Christ. Next, he reminded them of his prayers regarding their spiritual formation and how he prayed that their eyes would be continually opened to see again and again the riches and the power that was connected to this inheritance that they had received from Christ. Last time we saw that Paul reminded them of the truth that when they exercised their faith in Christ, they were brought from spiritual death to spiritual life. He said, basically, you were that, but now you're this. And you need to thank God for that and remember that you used to be that, but now you're this. So appreciate your spiritual transformation. And they were reminded also that all of this new standing with God is brought about, first of all, by God's grace, and second of all, by our faith in God and our receiving that grace. And we remember that Paul had not been away from the Ephesians very long before he wrote this letter. He found it necessary to remind them of these incredible spiritual riches, and he did it frequently. And he further emphasized that necessity. Notice how he began here. Therefore, remember, verse 11, chapter 2, verse 11. Therefore, remember that formerly you were you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision. Remember, he says again, that... At that time, you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise. We remember that Ephesus was mostly a Greek city, situated in the middle of what had been ancient Greece, now the Roman Empire, and therefore it was qualified for this description by Paul, excluded excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of promise. This alienation from God's covenants, this ignorance on their part about God's presence, uh, promises to God's people, this ignorance that they had was theirs by birth, not by choice. They just didn't know anything about it. The Ephesians were Greeks, not so much by their choice, by their birth. And so they knew little or nothing about Jewish history or about this new thing that was called Christianity. They, they just, they, they didn't know how it even had come into existence. So new and so foreign was all of this information for them that Paul knew he would have to repeat it to them over and over again. The same things. And he wanted to help them get it. But he knew he wasn't naive about their ignorance. And he said, I know you're going to have to just hear this over and over again. So I'm telling you again, remember, remember, remember. And it's no trouble for me, Paul wrote 
to the Philippians to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Does that scripture sound familiar? Haven't we heard that scripture recently? Yes, Pastor Mark preached on it Sunday morning. Remember? (laughs) He preached on it. And the reason why Mark preached on it is the same reason why I'm preaching on it tonight. It's because we all have such short memories. The Ephesians had short memories. They needed to hear it over and over and over again. And Paul said, hey, I know you need to hear it over again, especially the guys. And so I'm going to... Guys, amen. Come on, guys, fess up. Because your wives are going to tell on you tonight, and they'll say, yes, I need to tell him over and over and over again. Pick up your shoes, do, you know. I know, because my wife tells me the same thing. So it's not a secret. And Paul said, it's not a problem for me to tell this to you again. So we see the word remember once in verse 11 and once in verse 12. And we begin to see there is a purpose for every word in God's word. Another important point to make here refers to our topic tonight, which is transformed into community. Paul was addressing the Ephesian Gentiles in this section, at least here in the start. You who are Gentiles by birth, you guys, this is for you. Pay attention. Paul never apologized to the Gentile church for reminding them of this absolute miracle that it was that they even got saved at all. It was a miracle. And and they were not the original children of promise. He knew that too. He was Jewish. He knew that Israel was the were the the Israelites were the original children of promise. And he used the metaphor of a wild olive branch over in Romans chapter eleven and compared the Gentile community to a wild olive branch that had been grafted onto a cultivated tree grown in an olive grove. The cultivated tree represented Israel, the children of promise, and the Gentiles, although they were a wild olive branch, they had still been grafted on to the cultivated tree for one reason, and one reason only, it was by God's grace. In other words, God's image of the church in Romans 11 is that of a single olive tree with natural branches and grafted branches growing together and receiving their nourishment from one root system. And this section of Ephesians is a reminder to the Gentile Ephesians, don't forget who you are. Don't become conceited toward your Jewish brothers. Remember where you came from, Ephesians. Remember that you were grafted onto the tree. Remember that it's taken a miracle of God to bring you into this holy church. So we began last time to assemble a list of descriptions for those who are without Christ. Paul lists them here, beginning in this first part of this chapter. You were dead, in which you used to live, the sins and darkness that you used to live in. You followed the ways of this world. You were, by nature, objects of wrath. And then we can add what he writes here, separated from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in this world. Pretty bleak. If you begin to put all those things together, you really get quite a picture of the hopeless nature of these people before this little man Paul showed up in this wild city of Ephesus. It was bleak, spiritually speaking. 
I am reading, by the way, more and more articles, magazines, newspapers, online, whatever, and I'm seeing books even covering the idea that America and Europe have now entered a post-Christian era. Uh, when you look at our overall history, we will, you know, if you were to look back 50 years from now you, or 100 years, you may see Europe and America pretty much going through this together. What historians and uh, authors are now calling a post-Christian era. I don't think that's any surprise to any of us here tonight. It's true. That's what's going on. And it's going to be less and less difficult as a result of that for you and I to find people in our current culture who have no clue about what Christianity is or about what the Bible says. You're going to be finding and running into these people more and more. I have spoken to 20 and 30-somethings over the past 10, 15 years, who cannot comprehend the message of the New Testament. If if I talk with them about man's separation from God because of sin, sometimes the first question that pops out of their mouth is, what is sin? I've even had some who ask me, what is this Adam and Eve thing anyway? I heard it somewhere on the internet. You wouldn't imagine that in American culture, would you? But it's happening, it's out there, and it's becoming more and more prevalent. Kind of what Paul ran into in Ephesus. And so instead of going over the basic New Testament teachings about faith in Christ, I've got to, I've got to go all the way to back to Genesis chapter 1 with these people and talk with them about Adam and Eve and how we all got into this whole mess. It's just amazing to have a conversation like that. And what's a little scary is that those conversations I'm having with 20 and 30-something, those conversations are becoming much more frequent now. All human beings have the same basic needs when it comes to spiritual things and their relationship to God. People need to be loved, accepted, and forgiven by God. Those three basics. In these respects, a 20-year-old college student here in America, surfing on the web, down at the coffee shop, that person is no different than a tribal chief in central Borneo half the way around the world. They're no different. Their needs are still the same, no matter their culture. And uh, we've got to see, see that. And that's how God sees them. They're both human beings. They're both loved by God. And the trick for the Christian believer today and the Christian community today is to figure out how to relate God to that person in that culture and get it so where they can discover him too, like we have. Let's not uh, let the supposed sophistication of our American culture fool us. People would have us believe that our culture today, because of the, the height, the level of our sophistication today, people in America would have us believe that we are beyond God, that we don't need him. And that he's not relevant anymore. And when you're confronted with that kind of a response, it's really easy to back off of a person and just basically just give up. I'm, it isn't worth it. I'm not going to share my faith with this person. They're just too sophisticated for the gospel. Never, never believe that. Because their needs, no matter how sophisticated they may seem, are the very same as they are in another part of the world without the sophistication. It's just hard to relate God to them uh, in some, some cases unless you really can identify where they're coming from and then talk to them at their level. I mean, it, it's tricky and 
you know, they're, they're going to tell you, oh, that's old-fashioned stuff, the Bible stuff, and it doesn't relate to where I'm at today, and we've got to get past that. We've got to be able to say, no, wait, time out. Yes, it's relevant for today. It works for today. Let me show you how. Um, and people would say that now that we know more, we need God less, if we need Him at all, even. And they would say that, that, but when you're confronted with this kind of a response, you can back off, but don't give up. The Bible is relevant today just like it was 2,000 years ago. And the truths that are presented in Scripture apply to human beings now just like they always have. Now the reason that I'm talking about this right now is because although many of us have come out of darkness into the light, in a spiritual sense, there are millions, millions of people around us in our culture in America who have not come out of darkness into the light. Paul, being a Jew and coming into Ephesus to preach to the Gentiles, must have really had an eye-opening experience when he got there. How do I bring these Ephesians, these Gentiles, out of the darkness into the light? And I know this for sure about Paul. He could not use language that was familiar to the Jews. Because they didn't know about the Jewish religion. He had to relate the gospel somehow to Gentiles who knew virtually nothing about the Jewish God or the Jewish book. He had to. He was forced to. Because if he had started in relating the gospel to the Ephesians on the Old Testament, he'd have lost them for sure. And they never would have understood what, what he was saying. And so just like Paul did in Gentile Ephesus, we may have to take a second look at how we are presenting this good news of Jesus and then readapt it to fit our current culture, our postmodern culture. And I simply mean by this what Paul meant when he wrote this to the Corinthians. Though I am free and belong to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all men so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I might share in its blessings. So whatever it takes is what he's saying. Whatever it takes, Ephesian believers, whatever it takes, Corinthian believers, community of Christians, I want you to remember why you're here, guys, why you exist. Ephesians Christians, you exist so that others might come to know Christ just like you have. Amen. That's why we exist. You were dead. You used to live in this darkness. You followed the ways of the world. You were by nature objects of wrath. You were separate from Christ. On and on he went. And I think you would agree with me that to be in the spiritual state that Paul describes here, to be in that kind of darkness is not a good thing. Once I've gone through this spiritual transformation that is necessary to come out of that state of darkness, then... Certain responsibilities become mine, church. I need to remember, first of all, my former state. Second, I need to continue living in my new state. I need to communicate the good news to as many people as possible within my sphere of influence so that they, too, have a chance to escape their current dead state 
And next, I need to unite with my fellow believers a transformed community, which is what we're talking about, in order to present a consistent testimony to those outside of the church. Why? So that when they look at the church, they are attracted to Jesus, not repulsed by Jesus. Okay, And the only way that they will be affected that way is if we, the community of Jesus, are walking in unity and making an effort to put the gospel into their language and their context. That's, that's our commission. This brings us to the next section here in chapter 2 of Ephesians. Let's read in verse 14. For he himself is our peace who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace, and in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. The church cannot function if its members are torn apart. That's what he's trying to say here. That's why we have to do everything in our power to remain together, to avoid uh, distractions that might cause us to fight each other. When people on the outside see church members fighting, they go elsewhere for their spiritual satisfaction. It's just a fact. Maybe you grew up in a home where mom and dad were always fighting and bickering and saying unkind things to each other. Was that attractive to you as a child in your home? No. Did it make you want to get married? When you think back to those times, does it bring you joy or pain remembering your parents arguing? When families fight... Who wants to go to Thanksgiving dinner? When families fight, who looks forward to reunions and vacations together? They don't. Let's get real. All of that kind of fighting within a family is is painful. It's unattractive. Nobody likes it. And that's what Paul was trying to say in this section of chapter 2. Remember where you came from. Remember what you were and how you acted. Remember your estrangement from God. And how he received you with open arms into his loving family. And then remember that whereas before you Jews and Gentiles were separated by ethnic differences and centuries of prejudice and ill will, God brought you out of that. And he brought you together under one banner. And now in the church of Jesus, all of these walls have been taken down and, and, and the things that used to divide you don't anymore, at least they shouldn't. It's difficult for us to relate to these verses today if we are not familiar with the huge, huge cultural gaps between Jews and Gentiles in those days. Cultural gaps that still exist today. Believe me, I've been over that part of the world And it's there, man. Suffice it to say, their differences were many centuries ago. And their feud between Jew and Gentile, that feud was bitter and never-ending. And all you've got to do is read your newspaper 
about the Israelis and the Palestinians and the Middle East and all the struggles they've had over the the centuries and even the last few decades trying to get together, trying to find a peace process, and they never seem to get there. Their hatred for each other goes back, guys, not just centuries. It goes back millenniums. Their divisions run deep in the Middle East and their memories are sharp. And it was no different and it was no better in 55 AD when Paul wrote this letter to the Ephesians. That's why he had to urge these things on these new believers because he he was well aware of the divisions that were there. And although Ephesus was considered part of Greece, mostly Gentile, there were substantial numbers of Jews in Ephesus at that time. Suffice it to say these differences were, were many, like I said. And Paul was a Jew, and yet he came bringing the message of Jesus to both Jew and Gentile. Remember what happened when he was in Ephesus for the first time. It's uh, recorded over in Acts chapter 19. It tells us that when Paul arrived in Ephesus, he began his first preaching in the synagogue of the Jews. And he stayed in that synagogue for three months. After some of the Jews began to oppose him, he moved out of the synagogue down the hall to what was called the lecture hall of Tyrannus, a Gentile assembly hall. And he stayed there for two more years. Three months in the synagogue, two years in the Gentile assembly hall. And Acts 19.10 says, So all of the Jews and the Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. And now, fast forward to this part of Paul's letter to these same people in Ephesus after he'd been there or been away from them for a while. And what was he reminding them of here? He himself, Jesus, is our peace. He has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. He's reminding the Ephesian Jews and the Ephesian Gentiles, hey guys, you, you can't get your identity from those old things anymore. You're together in one family now. Don't forget that. He paid a big price to tear those walls down. The Jews and the Gentiles had both responded to the gospel message through Paul when he was there, but he still saw this need for cautioning them. Don't forget, Christ has made you all one through his suffering. Don't slip back into your old ways of thinking. Don't let the enemy turn you against each other. Don't allow yourselves to divide over unimportant things. Remember your testimony to the outside world depends on your unity. And unity was difficult for churches in those days. Shortly after Paul would leave a community, he'd go in and he'd get everything, everybody fired up and get a church started and then he'd get it set and get elders appointed and everything and he'd take off to the next community. And what would happen? Other preachers, other religious looking leaders would come in behind Paul and they would begin to try to weasel their way into the church with false teaching and strange twists on teachings that Paul had already given them. And among these false teachers were these Jewish zealots who came insisting to the Ephesians and the Galatians and the Philippians and others that true salvation could only be obtained if they reinstituted the rite of circumcision and coupled that together with their new Christian beliefs. 
As these twisted teachings made their way into the churches, they threatened to pull apart believers in all kinds of different groups. There was the pro-circumcision group, there was the non-circumcision group, and then they would degenerate into anti-Paul groups and pro-Paul groups, and then those would subdivide into even smaller groups. Happened all the time. And the tragedy of all of it was that the very thing Christ had died to accomplish, which was the establishment of his church, was in in danger of being destroyed by these divisions. And Paul's response to this danger was this. Hey, guys, listen. Transformed people don't divide over things that don't matter. I didn't teach you that stuff. Who's deceiving you? Why are you believing this? There are whole sections given to the subject of Christian unity in almost every epistle of Paul and Peter. And that tells me that, along with the message of salvation, unity of the church was a very, very important thing to them. They understood that the power of the gospel resided in the unity of the believers. They needed to be together in order for them to the, for the church to be effective. It tells me that these first apostles were not naive about the potential For human beings, even Christian human beings, to divide off from one another for all kinds of different reasons. They knew that could happen. Even Jesus prayed to the Father before leaving earth that all of them may be one Father, just as you are in me and I am in in you. And he told the disciples outright, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And so Jesus prayed for it he preached it and then Paul and Peter later wrote about it Christian unity was huge and it is here that we begin to see the potential for bitter division among the Jewish and Gentile believers in Ephesus and it was really dangerous and just as destructive as division also is unity division can be destructive but unity can be constructive It's always been God's intention for unity to build. His, verse 15 and 16, God's purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. And and the two being the Jew and the Gentile in those days. And in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. One new man out of two. That was the design of the gospel. That was the intent of the gospel. One new man out of two. One body. The purposes of God. That's what it was. God not only came for you, believers, He came for us. You see that? You are a part. I am a part. And together we make up a whole. Our unity is how we function. When we are not in unity, we're in danger of self-destructing. And that's never been God's purpose. There's this whole new breed of disease that has come on the scene over the last 50 years. It's been there forever, but we're just coming to know what it is. Uh, They are called the autoimmune diseases. Uh, And, you know, an autoimmune disease, you may be familiar with it if you have it. Rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis primary sclerosing cholangitis, multiple sclerosis, herpes, and hundreds more are being found. Many of these diseases can be fatal if they are not treated properly, but even when an autoimmune disease is treated properly, 
Sometimes the treatment itself can kill the patient. They are very, very destructive diseases. And one of the things that all of these autoimmune diseases have in common is that for some reason, which researchers really still haven't figured out yet, the body's immune system, the white cells, and the immune system begins to turn on itself. And the body's immune system begins to actually destroy healthy tissue in the body and attacks them as if those healthy cells were invading from the outside and it can't tell the difference anymore. It loses the ability to know good from evil in the body and the body begins to self-destruct because of this autoimmune failure. And so with rheumatoid arthritis, the cells in our joints come under attack. I had one lady the other day tell me that even with rheumatoid arthritis, it can attack your eyes. With Crohn's disease, the cell in the large and small intestine, the lining, those cells come under attack. With sclerosing cholangitis, the lining of the bile ducts in the liver come under attack. With multiple sclerosis, the lining of nerve fibers in our brain come under attack. And these attacks are not from the outside. They are from the inside. Healthy cells turning on healthy cells and destroying them. I think you understand why I am giving you this example right now. The physical body and the body of Christ are not all that different. When Christ's church is not working, when healthy cells in the, in the Christ church begin to attack other healthy cells, there's only one result. One. Self-destruction. Verse 19. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Wow, cool. So we change here from the metaphor of a body functioning together to the metaphor of a temple being built up. A single building, the body of Christ, where people come to worship and where God is ever present by His Spirit. And here, Paul's reminder and assurance to both Jew and Gentile in Ephesus, hey, you guys, you're fellow citizens with this, uh, with all of God's people. You're not strangers, you're not foreigners any longer. You are members of a new household being built up by God. In other words, you belong. You belong, Ephesian believers. You belong no matter what your background is. No matter whether you were a Jew or a pagan. No matter whether you were despised or a slave or sick or malformed or devious or addicted or perverse. Hypocritical, false, pretentious, murderous. You are all welcome into this new body through Christ's death. And being built up as household members in this incredible new temple. The whole building, he said, is now being joined together. And you are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. Joined together, built together. These words remind us that out of two, God is making one. There is exhortation and there is warning here. God exhorts us to become one, to allow this process of unity to have its way and to continue. And that we need to work at unity together. 
But God also warns us, hey guys, I'm going to build my church with you or without you. That's a warning. If I choose to resist the idea of one church under Jesus' name, I am welcome to do that if I want to. But in the end, I am only going to fight the inevitable. Jesus is going to build his church. It'll be his church. Heaven will be an amazing place, you guys. (laughs) I mean, talk about inclusion, huh? Look at the people next to you and down the road. Did you know those people down the road next to you in this congregation are going to be in heaven, whether you like them or not? Black, white, oriental, Hispanic, American Indian, Eurasian, Republican, Democrat, men, women, children, evangelical, Pentecostal, Baptist, Methodist, Catholic, Presbyterian, Lutheran, charismatic, non-charismatic, priests, nuns, prophets, non-prophets, athletes, geeks, cheerleaders, goths, punks, millionaires, paupers, beggars, cab drivers, rickshaw drivers, cattle drivers, Street sweepers, custodians, CEOs, mentally and physically handicapped. And the only thing that they will all have in common is the fact that we have a faith in Jesus Christ. Isn't that awesome? That's why heaven is going to be such an interesting place. It's because so many people are going to be there that are not like you. Thank God. And out of these multitudes of people, God is putting up this building. And Jesus is the chief cornerstone. And Paul said, we as a building are rising to become a holy temple in the Lord. Wow. Charles Jefferson wrote this quote that's up there on the screen. A sharp distinction ought to be made between a church and an audience. An audience is a group of unrelated people drawn together by a short-lived attraction. An audience is a crowd. And a church is a family. An audience is a gathering. A church is a fellowship. Is it up there? Oh, yeah. An audience is a heap of stones. A church is a temple. Preachers are ordained not to attract an audience, but to build a church. Coarse and worldly men, if richly gifted, can draw audiences. But only a man who is given to the Lord Jesus Christ can build a church. That's you and me. Amen. One of the strongest instincts is to belong. Uh, It's a hugely strong, powerful, driving human instinct. We want to belong to something, to be a member of something, to feel a part of something, that I'm in a family of some sort. We're talking about transformation in this series of teachings in Ephesians, about how God transforms us by His mighty power through Christ. But transform for what? One of the purposes for this incredible miracle in the human heart, one of the purposes is so that God can place us in a family. So that we can become fellow citizens with God's people. That is why Paul began this section with a reminder to the Ephesians, therefore remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, remember that at that time 
you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenant of the promise. The descriptive words for the Ephesians began with separate, excluded, aliens, and foreigners. Paul says, remember that. Remember what it used to be like for you. You didn't belong anywhere. But notice how it finishes this section with the words peace, fellow citizens, members built together. And it satisfies the deepest longing in your heart, whether you want to admit it or not. You want to be a part of something. And it's the best thing that you could ever dream of being a part of is the great temple of Jesus Christ, being a part of that, being a part of that incredible family. So I, I hope that we can remember this next time that we're tempted to complain about a fellow member in the church. I know there's a lot of people to complain about. I know that. You know that. The church of Jesus is actually a great place to participate and to belong. He knows all about the people that are struggling. He knows all about the people that you don't like at church. He knows that. Just let it go. You got to let it go. He's, he's going to take care of it. Amen? Just participate. Belong. Do the best you can to get along with as many as you can. <laughs> the rest of them, leave to God. You know, maybe you'll be over here in the living room in the temple and they can be over there in the bedroom or the bathroom. You know, when it's all built and finished and you won't have to deal with that. I don't know. I asked God about that the other day. Because there's so many people that have hurt me over the years as a Christian. And I'm like, is there a way that they could be over there, God, and I could be over here? Are, are you going to, you know, how are you going to work that out? Are you going to erase my memory or what are you going to do? So it should be interesting to see how that works out. But this building, this temple is designed by God to meet the deepest human longings that you have. So stay close, Celebration family. Let's stay close. And let's em emphasize the positive. There's going to be stuff that has to be changed and adjustments that have to be made from time to time here at the church. And mistakes will be made by all kinds of people. Let's just hang in there. We've got a great, we're part of a great, great building, worldwide building, amen? amen? Thank you, Lord God, for tonight. Thank you for your word, and we just pray that you make us all one and help us to understand the, what, that that's the deepest longing of our heart. That's really what we want, and help us to work towards unity in Jesus' name.